It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Live from Atlanta, this is a special edition of Sound On, the Georgia runoff election. The people have spoken. I will walk with you even as I work for you. But one of the things I want to tell all of you is you never stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop believing in America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Walker tried to make this a referendum on Joe Biden. Warnock tried to make it a choice on character and confidence. Herschel Walker's conduct, the issues around, you know, his lifestyle, just was like gasoline on that fire. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The runoff is over. But what will it change? Welcome to the fastest hour in politics, live from Atlanta once again on this day after. With both Democrats and Republicans set to learn some lessons from this exercise. And we'll begin our conversation with Michael Santiago Render, known to most as Killer Mike, the hip-hop star, turned Democratic political activist, now co-founder of Greenwood Financial Services on the movement that sent Raphael Warnock from Atlanta to Washington. We'll dig into the results with our signature panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us for the hour, along with Andre Gillespie, political scientist from Emory University here in Atlanta. 51-49, the new balance of power in the U.S. Senate as we head for the next session, and also just happens to be the spread between the two candidates here in Georgia, 51%, 49%. As Senator Raphael Warnock wins the race by just under 97,000 votes. Here he is at his victory rally. The work that we must do is difficult. The issues are not simple, they're complex. But here's my promise to you, I will walk with you even as I work for you. They had a party. Herschel Walker, to his credit, did concede the race. There were questions about that. He never, however, mentioned his opponent's name. Listen. I'm not going to make any excuses now because we put up one heck of a fight. And I said, that's what, that's what we got to do because this is much bigger. This is much bigger than Herschel Walker. And so we all woke up a bit bleary-eyed this morning. It was a late night only to realize that, well, it was still just really foggy in Atlanta. <laughs> it's been like San Francisco here this week. I'm told that's not normal. But we made tracks down to the iconic, the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Of course, that is where it all began for Senator Raphael Warnock as pastor beginning in 2005, following in the footsteps of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was co-pastor at that church. Now, of course, a national landmark. It's a national park. Spoke with some folks in the neighborhood, and we connected while we were there with Killer Mike, 
You're not going to hear this conversation anywhere else. Michael Santiago Render, a superstar in the hip-hop world, co-founder of the group Run the Jewels, star of Trigger Warning on Netflix, co-founder now of Greenwood Financial Services. He's getting into fintech as well to try to help communities of color. Of course, a Democratic political activist. And I started by asking him about that very spot. I was standing right on the corner in front of the church and the role that that church, the community, that neighborhood played in elevating Senator Raphael Warnock to victory. I'd say um, it, it was not important than the was. It is important than the is. I think Ebenezer has always had his finger on the pulse of the black and greater community. My barbershop is walking distance from that church, a big part of the reason that zone of economic opportunity for black people has existed for over 100 years. A big part of that reason that civil rights and solidarity was created right out of that district over 60 years ago, 60, 70 years ago, was because black people had a place that they could be in constant organization. And whether you're talking about Sundays on a plantation or the modern day black church, organization happens on Sunday mornings, at the Monday mornings after Sunday service. And I think that the reverend having been started in the community and fostering that church and fathering that church, it gave the community a real relationship with him that spread throughout Georgia. So whether it was his reputation as a hardworking student from a good family of Pentecostal preachers from Savannah or the reputation he built as a minister in Atlanta and activist on a constant basis on behalf of people, that church was, is, and will always be instrumental in progress in this country. Yeah, I'm sure you saw his victory rally last night and the four words he was dying to say, the people have spoken. Michael, what was the message that people sent here last night? I, I think I think the, the message was Georgia says that you got six more years to finish the job you started. <laughs> I sat down with him on my show, Love and Respect. I sat down with him and we got a chance to talk about his upbringing. We got a chance to talk about him as a Christian minister. And we got a chance to talk about what would drive a minister into politics. Would they be a typical politician or would they be like Adam Clayton Powell or have judged with the wisdom of Andrew Young and like a Solomon-like way? And I was very inspired by what I heard. So I encourage people to listen. But I think for me um, and my support of Reverend Warnock, it really was about we could send someone who could work on a bipartisan level, someone who was not so polarizing that people did not want to work with them. We could send someone who knew they had been tied to the whipping post and had been scandalized and talked bad about as well. And they chose to take a high road and not a low road and stay above the fray and keep on the campaign and keep campaigning minded. I saw the example of what I would want my next door neighbor to be. I saw the wisdom for what I would want a leader to be. And I saw someone with truly a Christ-like vision in terms of making sure that everyone has grace and the opportunity and equity in this country. So from your view, I know you spent time with Herschel Walker. Where did he go wrong? I, well, I don't know where he went wrong because it, the race was so close. Um, it really, it really surprised me and many others to see him pull, pull, pull. I think ultimately, um, what Herschel taught me, politics aside, was if you're an American and you're passionate about what you want to see in your community, don't wait, run. And I think that that's a lesson amidst all the jokes and all the slander that got given to both these black men at times. I think that they both are examples for run. Um, there's a woman named Teslin Figaro who works over at another network, but she came to Atlanta back in September and she taught 300 people how to organize to run for local and state elections. I think that we need more of her running around 
places where my community is. I think we need more people like Mr. Walker and Mr. Warnock to simply run, like Ms. Abrams, to simply run, like McKenna Williams, to simply run. If you think you can bring change to the 10 people to your right and your left, then I, then I dare you, yeah. I, I, I implore you, I push you to be hyper-local and run. You took some flack for spending time with Herschel Walker and with Brian Kemp, for instance, the Republican governor of Georgia. How do we get beyond this yeah. division, Michael? Well, how you get beyond it is you don't argue with trolls on Twitter. I learned that lesson. Right? Huh. Um, That's a good start. If you have an elected official, my grandmother, this woman on my chain, this beautiful woman who was from Tuskegee, Alabama, and organized with the SCLC, NAACP, and was active in her community, drug me to city council meetings at five years old, engaged politicians she agreed and disagreed with, taught me that once an election, elected official is in office, they have a duty to you. So I have talked to my governor. I've talked to my governor post that, and I will talk to my governor again because I'm passionate in particular about trades. I think that there's $4 million in Georgia that could help restore a trades um, scholarship that used to be given to kids in my community and beyond that disappeared. I have to talk to the governor about that. That same $4 million yes. was pushed by Vincent Ford, who's a Bernie crat and ultra progressive, uh, has been a state representative person, has been a, a mayoral candidate I first supported. Then I'm like, I called Senator Ford, like, hey, let's get this restored. I'd be a fool not to talk to my current governor about that. So I'm going to let you know that's one of the things I'm going to be talking to the governor about. So if you were upset the first time, get prepared to be upset again. But let's make sure we're supporting organizations like Georgia Youth Bill, which is an organization I'm getting $20,000 for that helps young men and women from 14 to 24-year-olds get their GED and get trades that pay at union scale. These trades can then be taken into the community to help build the community up and not tear the community down. So I'm going to continue to take that flag into battle on the behalf of my community, no matter who the elected official is. And I suggest that we all do that because once these elected officials are in office, they are in control of your life, whether you voted for them or not. That's right. I salute you for it. I don't know how we get beyond this without all talking to each other. It seems like a fairly simple solution. We have to engage in discourse. Thank you for saying that. Uh, owning a barbershop, um, uh, well, uh, barbershops, one in State Farm Arena, one about a mile from, uh, actually closer than that than Ebenezer on Edgewood and another one on Roosevelt Highway. Owning a barbershop gives me an opportunity to engage people I both agree and disagree with respectfully in social discourse in a private way. I encourage people to sit with people who you agree and don't agree with, your neighbors, your your coworkers, your friends, your comrades, get in a room of five to 10 people and have discussions. Don't have arguments. Don't try to win. Don't try to shame or embarrass, Hmm. but have discussions about this is why I feel like this. This is how I feel. I engage many, many conservatives, many, many people who would consider themselves extremely conservative in my DMs on IG and on Twitter. And the, the, the discourse is always respectful. It's always let me approach from a level of trying to understand your methodology. And I would like to do that more with everyone. And I encourage other people to do it with one another, because no matter what happens after any election, we're all Americans and we all have to progress this country forward. Well, that's some pretty great advice. Don't try to win. I like that. Try to listen no, maybe a little more often. I know Absolutely. congratulations uh, are, are due to you, uh, Michael, with another round of financing for Greenwood Bank. This is an important story as you try to bring services to people 
who are traditionally unbanked and underserved by by financial institutions uh, here in Atlanta and, of course, all over the country here. Another round of funding means, says to me at least, that this is working. How important will fintech be in lifting up communities of color in this country? I think every tool, Malcolm X said, by any means necessary, and I'd like to add every, by any and every means necessary, we should be trying. Because if we all do a little bit, none of us have to do a lot. There's still a place for brick and mortar banks. There's still a place for Citizens Trust Bank. There's still a place for Carver National. There's still a place for tons of other, um, tons of other um, brick and mortar black banks. In the fintech world, since 65% of our kids are banking, are done on a phone, are done on this, then we need to be making sure that yeah. we're a step ahead of the game and not a step behind it. We need to be with the wave and not behind the wave and not being crushed under it. I think what Ryan Glover and, and Paul Judge, um, who's out of the, the tech world and Ryan is out of television and money, had a brilliant idea that that they made sure had moral grounding with Andy Young and Bo Young being a part of it and making sure that it helped poor and worker class people of all ethnicities, not just black and Latinx people, poor and working class white folks too. Yeah. It would give them an opportunity to bank without having to pay enormous fees. It would give them an opportunity to make sure that they can build credit and have financial learning um, because not only have they created a channel, they have essentially centers you can just go to um, virtually and learn more. So I just believe in the company. Uh, I, every time someone sends me a card, like 10 minutes ago, like, I just got my card, I've already used it, things are going well. Or every time huh. I've managed it, it hasn't been a lot, someone might say, well, this thing is off, I contact them with our reps, and our reps immediately handle it. I think we're bringing something um, important to our community, I think we're bringing something important to FinTech, and I think that it's going to be life-changing for lots of people. Well, again, I congratulate you for it. How? How important will black business be then, Michael, as we look ahead to 2024 and, and the races that are already kicking off now in the next cycle to continuing the momentum that Senator Warnock started here in front of Ebenezer Church? I think black business is important. The district that you're standing in is the old fourth ward, and that area um, was championed by John Wesley Dobbs, who's the grandfather of Maynard Jackson, the first black mayor of Atlanta, who required 29 percent of your company be owned operated by African-Americans and blacks and minorities, um, which radically built a black middle class and working class. People like Herman Russell and the Russell Foundation that now help people learn financial literacy and computer coding. They were built in that time. So I think it's ultra important. I think that black business is, was, and will always be important. I like to encourage more people to be entrepreneurs and work with entrepreneurs um, of any color and race and creed and bring that back to the community and teach and um, make sure our children are financially literate at a, at a younger at a younger um, at a younger age. Um, I think that we have an opportunity in Atlanta to be the tip of the spear that does this throughout the South, whether it be Charlotte, Tampa, Birmingham, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I think if we do it right, it gets done again and again and replicated. I'm proud to be a part of it. So support black business. You ain't got to be black to do it. Killer Mike, Michael Santiago Render with us here on Bloomberg Sound On, a conversation you won't hear anywhere else. We'll make sure we get that online for you so you can have a chance to listen to the full interview. Let's play this to the panel. Our signature panel with us the day after. We all got ready for this yesterday, the big runoff here, and here we are the day after now. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis join us, our Bloomberg Politics contributors. The role that Stacey Abrams played in this outcome, Jeannie, is important. She lost her race against Brian Kemp for governor. But as we were just discussing there with Michael, 
the apparatus, the infrastructure that she built is still resonating and had a lot to do with his win. It, it does. And, and we heard Chuck Schumer saying that and, and thanking Stacey Abrams for her work because it does take that kind of apparatus. It takes that kind of get out the vote machine, which takes years to build, that she put in place that helped get Warnock over the line last night. So big kudos to Stacey Abrams. While she lost her own race, she paved the way for other people. And we know from talking to her, she would find that as much as equally as important, if not more than mm. her winning her own race. Herschel Walker, uh, Rick, did concede there was some concern that he might have been on the phone with Donald Trump last night. Of course, he wouldn't have been in this race or likely uh, the nominee without Trump. He never mentioned Raphael Warnock. How did he do bowing out? Look, I, he bowed out. He he recognized the outcome of the election, and that's a, a really good step forward for <clears throat> Republicans in that state. I mean, look, he's surrounded by people uh, with a lot of integrity. Uh, the uh, The secretary of state, the governor have all made election integrity and, and and these kinds of transitions an important factor and 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 he was able to uphold that tradition mm-hmm. uh in georgia so good for him to do that um you know it, whether or not he mentions uh senator warnock's name uh will be an asterisk in history uh yeah, sure. but he did the right thing by conceding is his political career over rick you know, he did really well. Uh, I think that, as uh, Killer Mike just said, I mean, he uh, he impressed a lot of people with his ability to get votes. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, he apported himself well. Um, you know, look, I mean, he, he was a first time candidate. He he acted like it. I mean, there was no uh, polish. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously, a lot of voters liked what they were hearing and uh, and, and and were willing to support him. So. Uh, certainly that's something he's going to have to think about. And, uh, yeah. and and I think that those conversations with people like um, the governor to see where he fits uh, are appropriate. And so the postmortem begins, and that's where we pick it up with our signature panel next. What now, Republicans and Democrats? This is Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. It is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. We've had a tough journey, have we not? But one of the things I said is they, when they called the race, I said the numbers doesn't look like they're going to add up. But one of the things I want to tell all of you is you never stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop believing in America. 51, a slim majority. That is great. And we are so happy about it. The work that we must do is difficult. The issues are not simple. They're complex. But here's my promise to you. I will walk with you even as I work for you continue to believe in the Constitution and believe in our elected officials most of all. Continue to pray for them because all the prayers you've given me, I felt those prayers. Ah, it's over. I think we can all agree on that. 
And who didn't want an extra four weeks? Because the midterms were so fun. My God, we got everything. And a little extra layer of frosting, although... The outcome, of course, is another matter here, and the postmortem, as I mentioned, now begins. There's some gnashing of teeth, wringing of hands in the Republican Party, and it all came to a head today in a briefing inside the U.S. Senate. Of course, the man responsible for getting Republican senators elected is Rick Scott of Florida, and he had a message today coming off this tough loss in Georgia. Here he is. We do have to have a message that when, when Republicans run, you say, you're, this is what Republicans are going to get done. Every state rate, every race is going to be a little bit different, but we've got to have an agenda. We've got, we've got $31 trillion of debt. We've got inflation 40-year high. We've got crime. We've got a board, open border. We've got, to, we've got to show the American public that we have a reason. There's a reason to vote for us, and we have to tell them why, why they vote for us. Why are we saying this now is the question. How about four weeks ago or maybe Four months ago, we reassembled a panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are back. What did you make of that, Rick? Uh, this is a tough one for for Rick Scott here, who's been at odds with Mitch McConnell, said he wouldn't get involved in the primaries, and Donald Trump ran away with a lot of them. Yeah, well, it's pretty obvious he wants to uh, indict the message, not the messengers. And in this case, uh, much of, I think, the uh, party is looking at the fact that we had subpar candidates uh, who, even if we had the best message available, uh, wasn't going to be able to deliver it without a lot of noise in the system. Because the reality is there were plenty of television ads about crime. There were plenty of television ads yeah. about inflation. All that stuff did happen. Uh, we didn't lack a message. Uh, but if if you're distracted in that message, you know, by the shenanigans of your former president or mm. or. Uh, other issues that you decide to delve into uh, that are outside the mainstream uh, and 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 some of those being the you know 2020 presidential election then 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 that's on you as a candidate that's on you as your advisors who think that somehow that garners some support uh, outside the mainstream voters and and those who kept to their message and and built bridges back to traditional Republican voters did well those who uh, sort of took the Trump line did poorly. Interesting to watch this briefing, Jeannie. Senator Mike Braun, uh, a conservative senator, you would think an ally of Rick Scott. That's why they're on stage together. Uh, Senator from Indiana, of course, he had some tough words. It sounded to me like the man he was sharing the stage with. Listen to Braun. Candidate quality does count. And then you could never have anything that's going to resonate generally if there's not a clear plan of what you're for we are basically for nothing and we complain about it along the way and then say well maybe we'll tell you after we're uh, elected it's not going to work democrats are political enterprisers this place is kind of their growth business and cathedral all wrapped into one Hmm. we are flat-footed and we're going to keep seeing the same results if we don't do something different he said a lot there, Jeannie. I know that as a Democrat, you might be rolling in this a little bit. But what does that say about Rick Scott standing right behind him on the stage? <laughs> Let the autopsies begin. Yeah, Rick Scott does not want to take any responsibility for his role and not challenging in some of these primaries. And, you know, the the reality is, historically, 
this has been the best midterm for a president's party since 1934, with a couple exceptions. And every one of those exceptions, 34, 98, it had to do because the opposition party was so darn awful. And in this case, that's what happened. And it was all at the hands of Donald Trump, who was picking these candidates, putting them out there. Let's not forget Senator Kennedy's closing argument for for Walker was that, you know, you should support him because high IQ people are somehow, you know, people that you don't want to be around and you don't want to support and you don't want to lead you. That's quite a heck of an endorsement to make for a candidate. So Walker was left flapping in the wind. He did better probably than I think many people expected, given how awful he was as a candidate and how awful the campaign was. And he did so because Donald Donald Trump is toxic in the suburbs, and that's where mm-hmm. Warnock was able to win. And the Republican Party is going to have to take control of their primaries, get them out of the hands of Donald Trump if they hope to nominate candidates who can win. I mean, imagine if some of the more establishment candidates had been running against Warnock. He would right. have had a much tougher race this time. Well, and that's the issue here, right, Rick? So many Republicans this morning are saying, what if? They didn't want Herschel Walker necessarily to begin with. Donald Trump selected him. There was a blowout in the primary with that endorsement. If it had been another candidate, maybe someone from Georgia, we might be having a different conversation right now. Uh, That's very true. Uh, I mean, you think about it. It's not only uh, Herschel Walker who was sort of chosen to run in Georgia by Donald Trump, but uh, uh, David Perdue was uh, recruited by Donald Trump to run uh, uh, against uh, Governor Kemp. Uh, in the primary and got slaughtered. Now, if you replace uh, Herschel Walker on the ballot yesterday with David Perdue, you might have had a chance. And and it's only because David Perdue had a, a particularly better relationship, exactly what Jeannie is saying, with suburban voters. Uh, and uh, he wasn't so dogmatic on so many of these issues, you know, when he was an existing United States senator. So, sure. Well, with that said, what happens to Donald Trump now, Rick, in the Republican Party? I know that's a big question and probably very difficult to give me a conclusive answer. But, you know, I keep hearing it's an inflection point. We've got to move on. John Thune's calling for a spirited primary. How do Republicans get Donald Trump out of their system then? Guess we lost Rick. You want to take a swing at that, Jeannie? Yeah, it, it seems like it's going to be hard for them to quit Donald Trump. And you know what movie that comes from, Joe Matthew. But, you know, listen, um, after 20, he lost the Senate for them in Georgia and they embraced him once again. You hope the second time around that they will not embrace him. But the reality is they might because he has been losing races for them 18, 20, 21, 22. And this should be the time at which they start to move away. The reality is, though, elites have tried this before. And if they keep putting their hand their 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 choice of candidates into primaries where voters about 20 30 percent make this decision then they may not be able to quit him so easily he still has a hold on the primary segment of this party that they've got to rest control of him and i'll tell you as democrats we are more than happy to have him keep choosing candidates yeah i bet that's true uh you want to take uh, another try there rick i think we we had an interruption with your line uh the republican party's relationship with donald trump is already complex Where's it going in the well, next couple of months? It's It's been complex for a lot, uh, a long time. And I think Donald Trump is doing a good job of taking himself out of the game, taking himself out of contentious contention as a uh, leader of the Republican Party. Uh, and not just because of his conduct post uh, January 6th uh, and, 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 and how he's conducted himself in his post-presidency, 
but his lack of success in picking candidates. Everyone gave him uh, a lot of swaths within the party to do so. And, and, and look, I think there is going to be a reckoning within the party on just how much they're going to listen to Donald Trump anymore. And you see these things coming out in fights for the RNC chairmanship and, 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 and that kind of thing. So he's much less important uh, than he was six months ago because of the poor outcome from his candidates in this election. And I think he'll be much less important uh, after the start of the year. I, I, I would say his presidential ambitions are on the rocks right now because mm-hmm. uh, nobody is looking for this style of leadership within the party right now. Ken Griffin called him a three-time loser after the general election, Genie. I'm assuming he would call him a four-time loser today following the conviction yesterday on tax fraud and the looming cases here, his references to revoking parts of the Constitution. How could the party let him go on? It's hard to imagine how they could. And, you know, now it's starting to be difficult to count how many losses he has. Three, four, five, you keep adding them up. Um, And the reality is there are more lawsuits to come. There are subpoenas out. There are criminal referrals being made. He is facing a bevy of charges in the legal system up and down the East Coast of the United States and across Mm -hmm. the country. And yet he is the only declared candidate early as he is for the Republican side. So they're going to have to look for alternatives. But the more people they have that run, the easier it is for him to get that nomination because that's going to split the voters. And if he can hang on to that 30 percent that he seems to have, you know, in his in his clutch, it's going to be hard for them to take that away. So I think look for the Republican Party to see if they can get some more establishment views sort of impacting the choice of candidate. You know, we've talked about the Democratic calendar. One of the reasons Joe Biden wants to move to South Carolina (laughs) is because he like South Carolina, but also because it takes it away from the extremists in the Democratic Party, which has been an issue, go back to the 80s and, and on up for them. And of course, South Carolina likes him. Uh, Rick and Jeannie will stay with us for the balance of the hour, our signature panel, and we'll talk next with Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University, with us in person since we made tracks to Atlanta, our special edition of Sound On. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Happy times if you're Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, now presiding over a bigger majority. And today, speaking with reporters, Cass Warnock's victory, Senator Warnock's victory as a repudiation of Donald Trump's movement. Listen. After one year, 10 months, and 17 days of the longest 50-50 Senate in history, 51, a slim majority. That is great, and we are so happy about it. First and foremost, I want to congratulate Raphael Warnock. I spoke to him this morning again on running, and he'll be up here later today, um, on running just a great race. It's about running on fumes. It's up pretty late with Senator Raphael Warnock last night. Wake up this morning is already in Washington. Joining us now in Atlanta here on Bloomberg is Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University, who we were lucky to have 
help us understand the wind-up to this runoff. And it's great to see you in person. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. So your takeaways here, uh, other than the fact that you're bleary-eyed, I suspect, like everyone else, somebody's, we've we got to get his kids to bed at this point. Herschel Walker, uh, I'm assuming, uh, had a pretty quiet day today compared to Raphael Warnock. Yeah, I mean, you know, the stories that I hear about people who lose elections are is that it's really kind of anticlimactic at mm-hmm. the um, end of it. And then you've got to sit and reflect and realize that you've done all this work and you won't actually be able to show any fruit from it. So, um, you know. Uh, you know, you know. Sadly, he's going to have to to work through those feelings, mm-hmm. and we wish him the best as as he does. The business we have chosen. Did he succeed more than you thought? Was this closer than you expected in terms of getting the rural vote? out on the day of the election? Uh, no. Um, and so, you know, while I, I do credit Walker with, uh, you know, uh, stanching the sort of loss of, of voters who might not have shown up on election day in mm-hmm. the rural parts of the state, uh, there was a problem um, in and around the suburbs here in Atlanta and the exurbs and then in North Georgia where there are lots of, of Republican votes. And that actually uh, could be used as evidence to kind of substantiate the concern that people had that Walker was not going to appeal to um, middle-class college-educated Republican voters. Um, And so that concern, you know, was, you know, materialized in the general election where we saw Walker get 200,000 fewer votes Mm. than Brian Kemp. Um, It was, you know, it materialized in this election where we see uh, lower voter turnout um, in some of these uh, exurban and metro counties. Um, And then it also reflected itself in the fact that uh, Walker's vote share actually shrunk in a lot of these places as well. And so that suggested that there were at least a small but significant group of voters who voted with their feet. Mm -hmm. They decided not to show up to vote. because they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker, and it didn't matter because the Democrats were already going to have control of the Senate. Um, or maybe in some cases, we'll look at the data later, yeah. that some of them may have voted for Raphael Warnock just because they thought he was the better candidate. We have a lot to learn still, I realize. Uh, Warnock won the general by 37,000 votes, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. We're rounding off here. It's closer to 97,000 this time. Uh, who who are those extra 60,000 people? So some of those voters uh, may be libertarian voters who returned in the election, even though some of them could have expressed their dissent by not showing up to vote at all. Also, there were people who did not vote in the November election mm-hmm. who were mobilized to turn out to vote in the general election. I thought the runoff was supposed to prevent that, wasn't it? You were supposed to duplicate the same group of people when this idea of the concept of the runoff came about, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, if candidates can decide to leverage the fact that there are non-voters and if they go and reach out to those voters and cultivate them and mobilize them to vote you can increase their likelihood of turning out to vote so this is a strategy that democrats have used they used it in 2021 they actually had time to register new people to vote uh, just because we had nine weeks as opposed to four weeks between the election and so they adopted the part of that strategy that they could this time around to find new voters so that they could grow that margin how much of this had to do with issues Versus personalities. Um, So, I mean, I think that party matters a lot. So for the most part, people voted whatever their normal partisan identification was. The difference was is that there was a small sliver of uh, conflicted Republicans who either didn't show up to vote um, or voted for Raphael Warnock. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when you are looking at the issues, the idea of the problems of Walker as a candidate limited his opportunities for persuasion Mm. so that you weren't going to have Democratic-leaning voters who would vote for Herschel Walker because you think he would do a better job. On the other hand, though, what Warnock tried to do was appeal to some of those conflicted Republican voters and say, you may not vote for my party most of the time, but in this instance, I'm clearly the better man. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think the lesson for 
for uh, for the Republicans is you don't want to have that type of unforced error where you are nominating somebody who's going to be that problematic in a general election. So, Andra, what's the, the status of Georgia? I'm reading headlines, and it's funny. It's a swing state now. It's a purple state now. It's a lot of things. But you actually live here and understand it. I realize that this could be the beginning of of a greater evolution in Georgia. Uh, but are we there yet? We're going to be answering and revisiting this question every election cycle, probably for the next decade. But what I will is say... Is that the trajectory for a swing state? I mean, do you have to start there to begin with? Start where? Start start in this sort of land of the unknown, that it actually it takes time, not just an election, but to your point, maybe a decade to change your stripes or or your status on the national political stage. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that you're going to see one kind of critical election that where we see a sea change happening. These things are gradual. They take place over time. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened gradually in the state of Georgia is that, you know, if we were having this conversation 15 years ago, this is a decidedly Republican state where Republicans win by double digit yeah. margins. Even with the strong Republican showing in this election, they weren't winning by those types of double-digit margins that they were winning 15 years ago. Okay. So in that respect, Georgia is more competitive. And Democrats have figured out, one, how to be competitive, how to get resources to the state, how to organize a lot better than they were doing 15 or even 10 years ago. Um, and they have figured out a formula by which they can be very competitive uh, when they're running against problematic Republican candidates. Now, I think the big test is what happens when you have a normal Democratic candidate and a normal Republican candidate <laughs> right. Running against each other. Fair enough. So, you know, not Donald Trump or one of his acolytes. Would, would the job have been much more difficult for Raphael Warnock? The conventional wisdom says yes, if he was running against almost anyone else. Um, so, I mean, it's speculative because yeah. we don't have a, a, a real comparison, but I actually... Just anecdotally. Just, yeah, no, I mean, I, I just, you know, if Gary Black, the second place Republican primary yeah. finisher, had uh, had been the nominee, uh, he's a policy candidate, he's an experienced campaigner, mm-hmm. he's disciplined, he didn't have all these skeletons in his closet. So it seems very probable that he could have ridden ridden the Republican wave that got all the other Republicans into statewide office in this state. So, yeah, I mean, I do think that if they had nominated somebody different, that we'd be looking at a a different outcome. But we do have to account for the fact that Raphael Warnock was the incumbent. Yes. That, you know, he had a record to run on. So um, I think we would have been looking at a closer margin in the race. But I think the Republicans would have been in a better position to contend, um, you know, had it been one of the other nominees. This is fascinating to me. Uh, talk to me then lastly about the Trump factor. Uh, what if you had removed him from this cycle? Would the result have been different there? Obviously, Republicans in Georgia uh, have a very conflicted relationship with him. Yeah, I mean, I think the Trump factor in this race is more of an original sin factor um, than anything else. So the issue is Donald Trump pushed to have his friend who was not qualified for the job get nominated. Now, to be sure, Herschel Walker, as a favored native son of the state, if he had decided to run on his own, he probably could have won a primary on name recognition and popularity. Um, but Andra, thank you. I wish we had more time. It's great to see you. Thank you for coming in. Andre Gillespie, Emory University, only here on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's quite a fact. The first time in more than a century, more than a hundred years, that voters elected senators, all senators who sought re-election this year, won Pretty remarkable. Of course, we needed to get through last night to know that Senator Raphael Warnock, the final incumbent, 
to win his re-election. And boy, that's why Chuck Schumer is sounding so happy today. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as we get some final thoughts with our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors, as we try to connect the dots here between the results, this new Senate, this new 5149 Senate and policy. I know we have to get through a lame duck first here, Rick, but what will this extra vote mean, if anything, when it comes to actually crafting legislation that might become law? You know, that's a, it's a good question. Certainly, it's going to increase the uh, balance of Democrats uh, running these committees, right? They now have a one-vote margin in all these committees. Uh, the obvious, uh, uh, all the uh, people who are appointed judges and cabinet members and sub-cabinet members that require confirmation will now mm-hmm. probably easily get confirmed. Yeah. Uh, and I would say that uh, the Democratic imprint on the budget uh, is going to be especially strong. So, you know, the FY23 budget is done, but the 24 budget will be written next year. And Democrats in the Senate will have a particularly strong hand in doing that. Yeah. Things like an assault weapons ban, though, Jeannie, an expanded child tax credit, the things that President Biden has suggested you might come around on or even in some cases promised with assault weapons come around on uh, again in this new Congress. Is anything really different when it's just one vote? You know, the reality is the Senate is by one vote, so it's still very narrow, but the House is Republican. So yeah. I think that the president is going to have to temper his big ambitions. It does give the Democrats some breathing room in an important way, though. The 24 map for the Senate for Democrats is a very tough map. Joe Manchin is up. Kristen Cinema is up. You know, President Biden campaigning for Warnock said, you know, if we're at 50-50, every single senator becomes a president. That gives some breathing room to the president and Democrats Mm -hmm. now. That's why Chuck Schumer is so happy about this. And it allows Joe Manchin, maybe Kristen Sinema, to vote against the party and for the party to still move forward. So there are some benefits here. But from a legislative capacity, we still have to get things through the House if you're a Democrat. And that's going to be really, really tough. And in many cases, you got to break the filibuster. They don't have the numbers for that. Right. It just might be a little wiggle room they didn't have before. Pretty interesting to think about what might be ahead uh, for Herschel Walker here, if anything, Rick. I mean, it's going to take a minute, obviously, but he's just gone through something in public that will change the way people look at him. Maybe not for the better. Maybe he goes away for good. But could you see a world in which Herschel Walker becomes uh, a, a political figure outside of elected office or, or maybe maybe he runs with Donald Trump? I don't know. I ask you that seeing Carrie Lake has practically moved into Mar-a-Lago. I mean, what's the next chapter for him? Uh, I'm not sure I'd uh, compare uh, Herschel Walker to Carrie Lake, but um, but look, Herschel Walker is a celebrity. I mean, part of the criticism uh, that was lobbed on him was that, you know, he wasn't a political professional. He was just a celebrity. And, you know, why would a celebrity uh, be qualified to run mm-hmm. uh, for public office? But, of course, we always have celebrities running for public office. How so true. on his own, he will have some cachet, some value, uh, whether it's raising money for the party, either in yep. the state of uh, Georgia or outside, uh, or endorsing uh, potential future presidential candidates, although we think we know where his heart lies. So yeah, right. um, I don't think he just disappears. Uh, and that'll be totally on him uh, if he does. Does he do a photo op at some point for the sake of unity with Raphael Warnock, Jeannie? 
He very well might. You know, if he had given the speech during the campaign that he gave last night, he, yeah. he maybe have, have had more sway in the suburbs. But I oh. also think we've, we've talked a lot about Walker and how difficult his candidacy was. Warnock, a historic victory. Some people saying a potential presidential candidate on the Democratic side going forward. <laughs> Fascinating and great analysis from the panel. Thanks, Jeannie. Thank you, Rick. We survived another election. And thanks to everyone. Part of the fastest hour in politics, including Killer Mike including Andre Gillespie. A fascinating visit here to Atlanta. Thanks for sharing it with us. And again, subscribe to the podcast. You might have missed something. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.